Totally Football Show. Today, it's a huge weekend for everyone from Cats to Qataris. We look at Man City, Wolves, Eagles and the on-field pause at Goodison. Everton taking longer to get rid of their kitty than Daniel Levy. Will they wait as long with their manager? Also, PSG, Hobinho teaming up with Denver Bar, where Asian Cup and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, thanks for joining us again, listener. Today, it's Cox. Hi, James. It's Story. Good morning. Kind of need a Dewey at this point, but what we've got is Matt Davis-Adams. Howdy. The man who commentated on both the Asian Cup final and Chelsea's equally historic final win at home to Huddersfield. Plenty of you coming up then, Matt Davis-Adams. Great. It is good news. So much, as ever, has happened this weekend. Michael, if I were to prod you and say, what could you distill it down to? What one conclusion would you draw from... 48 hours or more of watching football. I think it was a big win for Crystal Palace, um, not just the nature of getting three points uh, against a team who uh, are also fighting relegation Fulham, but the fact that uh, Benteke looked relatively confident and Batshuayi arrived and had an impact mm. and they've just lacked a striker all season, so I think that's them sorted now. Right, OK. Matt? The Asian Cup final. Really? Mm. We'll hear why later on. No spoilers, though, because uh, so it's Japan against Qatar. That's right. My money's on the Japanese, I think. Uh <laughs> Daniel, Daniel, I mean, there's so much to choose from. You've got PSG losing for the first time this season. Mm -hmm. You've got, uh, oh, Juventus Parma. I don't know if you saw that. That was a bonkers game. Man City Arsenal. Uh, Lewis Dunk. Did you enjoy that? Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah, With a Phil Jones tackle. Right. Go on, you tell me yours. So, I mean, he doesn't actually. Phil Jones has a reputation for doing it because when he could do other things, Lewis Dunk didn't have an option, Mm. but someone was piling through on goal and he tackled him with his head and should have got kicked in the head but somehow karma dictated that he didn't it's, it was good it was very good what I took was that brilliant though football is and unbelievably skilled though all its exponents have been the best thing about the weekend was a single cat running around a pitch <laughs> for three minutes it was absolutely joyous no uh, listeners loved it too like you Adam Turner after the Everton cat incident what are the panel's favourite animals in football I love questions like this. The Hereford Bull, says Adam. That Wembley White Horse, or possibly Ashley Young's Pigeon. Hmm? <laughs> I forgot about the pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, Adam. It, I think it's a rhetorical question. Uh, let's move on then to proper things like Manchester City playing Arsenal. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Cat update, Matt. Yeah, so I was watching the the game on on match of the day, aware that this cat was going to make uh, make an appearance. Uh, I was watching with my dog Brian, sat faithfully in my lap. It was his birthday. He was he was very happy. He had a pig's ear, and then the cat came on and he just went absolutely ballistic as ever. He just can't. Mm. He just the TV is difficult for him anyway, which I understand um, to comprehend as a dog. But when there are animals on it, forget about it. You've got to change the channel right. immediately. Pig's ear, an appropriate dish, given Everton's performance in that game. Quite, yeah. yeah. We'll come on to that match later on, and it is one rich in, in talking points. But um, Man City-Arsenal, uh, once again, Aguero early and Aguero often. Duncan Alexander actually pointing out that now 1.4% of all opening minute goals in Premier League history have been scored by Sergio Aguero and scored by Sergio Aguero in the past six days. That's unbelievable. That's impressive, yeah, especially as he's more renowned historically for scoring crucial late goals. Is that right? Well, he's good. Yeah. All right, okay. There's been a lot of talk that he's somehow not appreciated or not given the respect that his incredible numbers, what is it, scoring at least 20 goals in 11 of the last 12 seasons, and against the other big six sides, 40 goals in 62 matches, Mm -hmm. but he's somehow not regarded as one of the all-time greats, would you agree? I think that perception probably is true. And personally, I think it's because it feels like we don't really know him. I mean, he very rarely does interviews. He did one in English after the game yesterday where he didn't seem entirely confident speaking in English. And compared to someone like Cantona or Henri or Cristiano Ronaldo, who it feels like we got to know them and we got to know their development. And Aguero is just different. I don't know anything about him. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I don't think he has that kind of... You're not on. You don't feel on first name terms with him. You know, you don't call him Sergio like we call, well, like we said, Thierry or Cristiano. Do you know mm. what I mean? He just feels quite distant. Yeah, I mean, given that his his kind of backstory, and if we think he's good, then how good is his son going to be? But married to Maradona's <laughs> daughter, has Maradona's grandchild, all, all that. Plus, he he plays in a really all star team. Is that why his kind of light is almost obscured? Look, possibly. Um, 
and I think there are there are also players in that Manchester City team when they've been at their best that have been easier to identify with. David Silva certainly one. I think Vincent Company in their first title win probably was as well. Even though Aguero scores the famous goal and he probably has the iconic moment in Premier League history or the iconic goal in Premier League history, I think we identified with those two. Maybe even Yaya Torre as well. Um, so yeah, I think they're probably easier players to identify with in the team. I think he's he's got better under Guardiola as well. I mean, I think Guardiola's got a reputation for developing young players, but he's actually very good at getting players who are supposedly at their peak and taking them to the next level. I think he's done that with David Silva and certainly with Aguero. I think his link plays much better now. And as well, he's very good at getting those poachers goals uh, right. as he did the weekend. I don't think we really associate that type of finish with him in years gone by, but I think he's added a lot more to his game. Right, Those poachers goals, as you describe it, which you could also view as, as the the classic Man City under Guardiola way of scoring, no? Yeah, they do it so often. I've never seen a team score so many open goals. It's it's just incredible. And it's clearly a, a deliberate ploy, you know, to use wingers in, in that slightly conventional way going around the outside, whereas these days we're used to them cutting inside, but they've almost flipped it. And Aguero is the ideal player to, to finish off those kind of goals because his, his movement's that good in that particular area of the pitch. I did wonder actually watching the game if, if he might be the best ever. Premier League player. I mean, 157 goals in 227 games is ridiculous. But as Michael says, he hasn't got the force of personality. The only thing we really found out about him on that Amazon documentary was that he doesn't like the fact that he has to live on his own in a flat in Manchester. Mm. Um, but yeah, unbelievable. And and the fact that, as Michael said, Guardiola has developed him as a player, but it initially looked like Guardiola didn't fancy him, didn't it? And Gabriel Jesus came in and he wondered if his time was up um, yeah. with his age and whatever. But he's... It would have been easy for him at that point to say, OK, well, I'll move somewhere else then. I've, I've done everything I need to do here. Uh, he's gone on to become City's all-time record scorer. Maybe one of those you only appreciate when he stops playing in the Premier League. Possibly. Mm. I thought it was interesting that they did score three of those goals yesterday because actually they've been playing Leroy Sané as a regulation winger recently with Sterling on the right. They went for the opposite plan yesterday and played Bernardo Silva as the inverted, played Sterling on the left. And yet it was Sterling, I think, at least one of them, and was it? I think two of them. Two of them. Yeah. Two of them. He 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 was the one that played the ball in. Mm. I thought the finish for Aguero's first goal that early in a game, a diving header close to the ground, was a far better finish than it kind of got credit for. It 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 was seen as a regulation. I don't think it was at all. It was so low to the ground to go with his head like that, and that's the only way he could have scored it. Um, but yeah, you you watch City at home, and, and Guardiola is actively frustrated and angered when they shoot from distance. This is the goal he wants to score. He, he wants to pass slowly bring players out, bring the opposition out. Then he wants to pass fast, create some space. Then he wants to get the byline and then he wants an open goal. And yeah, they did it. They, you felt in the second half they could have done it three or four more times. All right. Mind you, I mean, a lot of people saying that Chelsea's win should be uh, taken with the asterisk that it was against Huddersfield. This was against an, not not just an Arsenal back line, but an Arsenal back line that, because of injuries, Koscielny played, mm-hmm. but you have uh, Mustafi in there, you have Licksteiner in there. Yeah. Yeah, Licksteiner is, is not having a good season. I mean, I think he's been a very good player for Juventus. Kind of classic Juventus player, does a job. Defensively solid there, but he's against quick opponents in particular. He's finding it really, really difficult. And all three goals came down that side. Um, so I think Maitland-Niles was, was not quite fit enough, but I think he will play for the rest of the season. I think that's his position to lose now because Lick Steiner just doesn't have the mobility. And I, I don't think Jenkinson is a, a serious option for the Premier League. All right. Arsenal uh, bouncing back briefly in this game, but it was the usual defeat away to a big six side. Sibs, in fact, pointing out that since they last had a victory away to one of the big six in the Premier League, Mourinho won two trophies at Chelsea, was sacked, spent three years at Man United, won two more trophies and was sacked again. Leeds have had seven managers. Big Sam Allardyce has managed five teams. Seven iPhones have been released and 36 Premier League managers have been sacked. Duncan Alexander pitching in and saying Alan Pardew has won three Premier League away games at Big Six clubs since Arsenal last got one. Yeah, they are, they are bad in those games and they are stereotypically bad in those games and we, we, we see them capitulating. But they're, nowhere, they're light years away. They're in a different realm to City at the moment. Arsenal have... I actually worked it out for Everton as a damning of Marco Silva, but Arsenal have seven players in their first-team squad that cost £20 million or more. Everton have got ten. So they just haven't got the players at the moment. And as soon as some injuries kick in or fatigue kicks in, then they're only going to go one way. That defence is... I'd suggest the defence they played at the weekend was probably worse than 12 or 13 other Premier League defences. It's just not very good. Mm. 
that last win at a big six team, that presumably was the City one with Coquelin and Cazorla where Wenger made a rare change of formation. So what does Emery do here? Goes with Aubameyang and Lacazette up front and essentially plays into City's hands. So it's a long time to roll back the clock to, but why not change the tactic? And it, it was an ideal opponent for, for City in a way that, say, Crystal Palace weren't when they went there because they went yeah. with a different game plan. Palace actually are the team who have they've won six times at the top six since since Arsenal have. They're wow. actually the one, other than, um, other than Manchester City, they're actually the team with the most wins away at top six clubs. Right, well, there are three of those presumably with... Pardiola. Pards. Okay. <laughs> Arsenal slipped down to six. Still next week, they take on Huddersfield and Chelsea play City. So there's every chance we'll just swap straight back again, <laughs> which you know, renders all of the preceding <laughs> chat. Uh, yeah. Uh, Daniel, anything you want to add before we move on? As a word of praise for Arsenal, I would say Matteo Guendouzi was actually, I thought, pretty good. Probably Arsenal's best player yesterday. And actually, I, he was the one I worried about at the start of the game, other than Licksteiner. And I thought he dealt with it pretty maturely I've, we're in danger I think this season of kind of overrating him because he is only 19 and, and he still needs to be it doesn't matter what age he is he still needs to be fit for purpose he's going to start big Premier League games but mm. I think he thought he was excellent yesterday Remarkable for a player who came from the French second division Yeah exactly Well, but Angelo Canti had recently been in the French second oh, division when true. he came so. yeah. uh, We should give a uh, shout out to Fernandinho as well who played this very peculiar half centre-back, half central midfield role that uh, I think takes an incredibly tactically intelligent player to, to pull off. That was quite impressive. Right. It was a curious formation that Guardiola opted for. Yeah, so it was almost 4-3-3 without the ball. And then when they did have the ball, Fernandinho pushed forward alongside Gundogan to make something like 3-2-2-3, um, which really kind of... Well, yeah, it's a pretty out-there formation, but it's something that Guardiola has done previously with... With uh, Sergio Busquets uh, at Barcelona, kind of played that half and half role sometimes, but it's it's yeah, it's quite difficult to to get that one right. But City, I mean, in the second half, they just weren't troubled. Arsenal didn't have a shot on or off target, and part of that was Arsenal being poor, but also City was so well organised. And every time Arsenal did have a chance to counter attack, they had you know almost these two lines of defence that Arsenal just couldn't break through. Next up, City will be taking their record in 2019, which is. Eight wins in nine, 34 goals scored and just four conceded. They'll take that form anyway to Goodison Park to face an Everton side that's just got booed off after their performance this weekend at home to Wolves. Wolves scoring at least three goals for the third consecutive Premier League game against one of the kind of teams in and around them in the Premier League table. And Everton looking more and more a mess. Matt, I know your dog ran away from this game. Yeah. What did you make of it? I actually feel like Marco Silva maybe deserves um, a bit of a defence because he hasn't got much of a defence, if I can put it that way. Uh, you know, Seamus Coleman hasn't been the player he was since he had that horrific leg break. Leighton Baines here clearly passed his best, gives away a penalty, what, six minutes into the match. Uh, he's inherited the likes of Michael Keane, who hasn't kicked on. He's had two transfer windows, which is probably not enough. We generally talk about three, four transfer windows to, to put your impression on a team. I would suggest that's what you need, yeah. And and I think there's this kind of perception... Does it depend how much you spend in those... Tra- like a, 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 a Spurs transfer window. You yeah, yeah maybe, that's true. 17 but- or 18, but he spent a lot of... well. A lot of money has been spent at that club. He's spent a lot of money, but it, if Spurs wanted to buy players, it would be easier to attract ones of quality than it is for Everton. I think there's, there's kind of a perception that Everton are automatically the seventh best team in the Premier League. Well, this is a team that flirted with relegation to the point last season that they had to hire Sam Allardyce. So is it realistic to expect them to be you know, the seventh best team in the league? I think the problem, the reason they get booed off is because Everton fans would think we should be better than Wolves. But Wolves mm. this season are a more well-drilled, better team than um, than Everton and because they played together for a full year last year under the same manager. So it's not a great record by any means. Winning right. six of 13 home games is not good and that will turn the fans against you. But I think there is a bit of a caveat there for him. OK, Everton fans might feel they should be better than Millwall as well, who, of course, they, they well, lost yeah, in. Well, yeah, but I mean, Millwall were incredibly lucky to get through that tie. They had at least one goal that should have been ruled out. And okay. Everton aren't the only team to from the Premier League to lose to a team from a lower division this season. Right, what is it, three wins in 12 for Everton? I think the biggest the biggest issue he's got is that there is a, there's a growing reputation that he is, um, and it, it works particularly badly at Everton, that he has, he's similar to Roberto Martinez, which is that when a kind of sunshine manager, when things are going well, the football's good, but when you need to dig in and show some resilience, it's just not there. He, I saw a, a statistic this weekend that 
um, his 47 Premier League games in charge, they've conceded 30, his teams have conceded 33 times from set pieces. That was a, he had the, that reputation before he went to Goodison, and it has not improved there. Right. Uh, that's more than any other Premier League manager over that period. Mm. Now, for part of that, he was at Watford and Hull, so he gets a, a slightly freer ride. But at Everton, they expected him to hit the ground running because he came with this reputation of short-term manager. You know, I will give you a hit, but I want to be the long-term guy. He, it's very hard, I think, for him to then turn around and go, oh, well, actually, don't worry about this season. Because his whole thing has been initial success and then tailing off. This business of set pieces, though, and those numbers do sound particularly dramatic... D- to an untutored eye, defending set pieces would be the easiest thing to to manage because it is a it is a uh, a rare moments of stillness. It is a rare moment, almost of order, that you can kind of put your pieces in in place. Uh, well, how would you account for the fact that he is a pretty successful top level manager? Isn't able to get his players to observe what basic marking is it, or what's the issue? Yeah, it was certainly basic marking at the weekend. I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether they don't spend enough time on the training ground, whether he fills his side with technical players so they don't have the, the natural headers of the ball in there. Um, but it is a consistent problem. And, and this uh, the goal they conceded uh, to Jimenez, mm, the header, it was yeah. just bizarrely unmarked. You know, it was it's a kind of... You just don't really see that goal. You don't see someone un- unmarked to the near post for a, a head at goal from that I think angle. Richarlison was with him, but then Jimenez wandered off and Richarlison yeah. kind of stared after him like a... You know, a narrowly missed bus or something like that. <laughs> I mean, look at the team. I think they've over. I think Everton have had to overpay for players because of they don't have the kudos of a of a, a big six club. But you know that team that played at the weekend has Walcott, which is twenty five million, has Sigurdsson forty million, Richarlison fifty million, Tosin twenty five million, Michael Keane twenty five million. You know they've got even the two loan players, Kurt Zuma and Andrew Gomez, are you know stellar loan players. Mm. I, I honestly, I, I, well, I did like Marco Silva, I do like Marco Silva, but I think there are a number of managers out there who will be doing better with this squad this season. Right, and one of them might have been sat on the opposite bench, of course, in this clash. That was one of the issues, I think, perhaps, for um, Silva, this all-Lusitanian affair with Nuno Spirito Santo. And indeed, the first two goals, I think, were both Portuguese mm. goals as well. But h- how impressed are you with Nuno? And how long do you think Silva's got? I would say Silver's got until the end of the season. Certainly, that I mean, they're you know they're ninth in the table. Um, Nuno's just fantastic, isn't he? He's got, as you say, it's quite a marked um, contrast between the two. Even though they're both Portuguese managers, you know, one of them's just got real demonstrable personality. I think Nuno, and that always goes down well with supporters. But at the start of the season, or a few games in, we were wondering if he was doing the right thing in, in keeping the same team for every game, but it's really worked. You look at someone like Jimenez, who, who had a slow start. He's got nine Premier League goals now. Um, the few buys that they made in the summer generally have, have settled pretty well. They've bought themselves a really good goalkeeper. Again, Portuguese. And they're seventh in the table as it stands, and there's no reason to think that they can't finish there above, certainly Watford, Everton and Leicester. Can't see... Don't think any of those teams are better than than Wolves are at the moment. They've made a, a quite an important change in formation as well. They've gone from three four three to three five two, beefed up the midfield with Dendonka, who seems a decent player. Didn't really know much about him before this season, to be honest, but it seems like he's providing the energy in, in there alongside Neves. Um, Moutinho is a really, really good player. I mean, they've got some stars in that side. I think Doherty has been one of the best right sided players, but Moutinho is at his peak was a world-class central midfielder and I think he's still pretty close to that level he's just his passing range is fantastic he can pick passes like I'd say as good as anyone in the league he's fantastic I think Silva has probably got the two games he would most like to do without they've got a dreadful home record and they face Manchester City at home and then at the weekend they play Watford away which um, given his history given where the two teams are at the moment Watford are above Everton um, if they lose that I think he could be under serious pressure I do I think he's already under serious pressure. No, but as in, you asked well, how long yeah. do you think he's got in his job. I think his job is under serious pressure. Farhad Mashiri came out in January and said, I support him, but this league position is not good enough. Yeah. And since then, they've lost to Southampton. They've gone out of the cup to Millwall. They've lost it home to Wolves. Well, uh, Wolves themselves will have a midweek game Tuesday night. They are hosting, I think, is that right? They're hosting Shrewsbury? Yes. In the FA Cup fourth round replay. Next up, this week's hot take on Spurs. So that result was their eighth nil-nil in a row and we've even had reports of fans falling asleep in their seats. Stuart is at the game, joins us now on the line. Stuart? Stuart? 
Sounds like Stuart needed Paddy Power, because with our new Same Game Multi, you can combine multiple bets from the same game, so everything is exciting. Plus, you'll get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold Same Game Multi lets you down. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match fourfold plus Same Game Multi bets. First qualifying bet only max free bet £10 per customer per day. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be on Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Yep, Spurs have swung again. They've gone from sign someone you trophyless bottlers to this hot Spurs side may yet win the league as they briefly moved into second on Saturday courtesy of a, a 1-0 victory over Newcastle yet again. A goal in what we now must surely term potch time. It's, it's just always late goals, isn't it? With the last 10 minutes of games, potch time. Uh, Lorente came on Sun scored this was at home to Newcastle you know that listener um, yeah Sun brilliant no yeah, just really. come back off the off the plane and and Bosch yeah didn't have much action in the um, in the Asian Cup but one of the best buys in, in recent Premier League history from a team who don't make many transfers 22 million when he was 23 years old um, improved massively in that time nine goals five assists in his last 10 games for Spurs um, it's it's incredible they still haven't drawn a game all season Tottenham but yeah sort of impressive grit that maybe you wouldn't have associated with them until until recent weeks well actually they've kind of been doing it all through the season though in the Champions November, League yeah they've they against PSV Inter and Barcelona they scored late mm. winners or equalisers they did it against Fulham Christian Eriksen scored a late winner against Burnley I think at home Newcastle so I think I'm right in saying that no Premier League team has one more points in the last 10 minutes of matches a season which yeah given that we assumed they would this would be the time that they would most struggle uh, after christmas and in the last moments of games is madness yeah and particularly when i was reading in a, a tabloid this week that you could <laughs> double the wages of every single spurs player daniel <laughs> indeed yes you could, they could still sign 70 players on 100 grand a week and would still have a lower wage bill than manchester city highest form of flattery yeah so this is what daniel tweeted you know daniel tweeted this last week and a tabloid that people should think twice before reading stuck it out as their own story. Yeah, the guy follows me on Twitter as well. It's not like he saw it on a banter account that had stolen it and then used it. Right. Fair enough, whatever. Very charitably, you've you've uh, tweeted since that if he's short of material, he can have the fact that since Spurs last made a signing, the current 20 Premier League clubs have bought 139 players on permanent deals alone. It's mm. a lot, isn't it? Yeah, Lucas Moura, their last one. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, just on the subject of Sun, the, those numbers you mentioned, are, they are extraordinary, and especially, I think, given the context that he's scoring them in. Yeah, context of, in, in terms of his own potential fatigue after the Asian Cup, but also the fact that this was the time when Spurs really, really needed him. For all the noise around Pochettino, and it has become the social media argument of the season, um, you cannot doubt his ability to get the best out of players, individual players, in when times have gone tough. Every time it seems we need Harry Kane to step up, he does it. Every time they need Young Min Sun to step up, they do it. Every time they need Eriksen to stand up, they do it. And yeah, um, they they aren't in a title race, I don't believe, but they have effectively secured top four place over the last few weeks, I think. Yeah, they're nine points ahead of fifth place side Man United. Arsenal a further point back in sixth and Chelsea now moving back to fourth. Courtesy of their whopping win at home to Huddersfield. Matt, you were all over this. Certainly was, yeah. What, was, what moment made you gasp? Well, initially it was the Higuain second, but then I watched the replay and it flicked off Congolo, which kind of took a, took away from it a bit. So I'll go for the pass from Ross Barkley hmm. to Hazard uh, for his second goal. Um, and I also quite like the fact that Huddersfield brought on Carlin Grant, who was their new signing um, and a week after he'd missed a penalty at Peterborough for Charlton, he was playing at Stamford Bridge, which has got to be um, something of a rarity. But Chelsea were good in this game, but you, you just have to add the it was Huddersfield caveat. Unfortunately, they, they're they just rubbish, I'm afraid. They're, they're nowhere near Premier League level, which is understandable given given the squad that they've got. And, and it's interesting that they've gone for Jan Sievert. Uh, only manager younger than him in the top four divisions is Joey Barton. Really? By 10 days, yeah. How is Joey getting on at, at, at uh, Fleetwood, no? Fair to middling, yeah. All right season. They've tailed off a little bit in the second half, but um, but not too bad. But yeah, Chelsea here were really good. Uh, and Golo Kante 
played particularly well. Barkley instead of Kovacic was a good change from Maurizio Sarri yeah. uh, to make. I think Kovacic's role in the team, if anything, would be back up to Jorginho now. He's done that in the last two home games and looked pretty decent there, but he doesn't offer much. He hasn't scored in like 82 games. Right. Shooting is, for an elite footballer with attacking, attacking intentions, his shooting is abysmal, isn't it? He, He's a kind of, just shoots from everywhere and anywhere and constantly goes high and wide. It's Kovacic. Yeah, it's really bad shooting. Uh, presumably it was a massive relief to see that Higuain wasn't a total boob. I know it was only yeah. Huddersfield, but <laughs> yeah, the yeah. venom with which he struck, particularly the first one. And not only that, I mean, his movement is is phenomenal. Is that of a, a, a world-class player. And we had um, Eden Hazard on our post-match show on Saturday mm. and, and he was asked about Higuain and he said he's less of a target man than Giroud, but he's intelligent and in the box he's unbelievable. And that was certainly the case for his first goal, which was really well taken but it's it's almost as important to get Eden Hazard out of that false nine slash central striker role and back to where he can be much more effective um, but yeah he's obviously got an understanding with Higuain already which which bodes well for Chelsea but they've got was, such a whopper of a month coming up it's ridiculous they, Man City away next weekend mm. which they've got a free week to train for which is which is big City haven't uh, then they've got Man United in the FA Cup both legs of the game against Malmo the League Cup final against City and then they finish with a home game against Spurs in the Premier League so wow. it's, it's ginormous it is Matt albeit against Huddersfield this was a much needed win for Maurizio Sarri who people even people in this room Matt have suggested might not be entirely secure in his position there at Chelsea. Is it happy camp in, uh, at the moment? Um, yes, I think so. I mean, it's all about results, isn't it? It certainly wasn't a happy camp on Wednesday when they played quite well in the first half at Bournemouth and then shipped four goals. Um, it's He's played his cards early in, in the fact that he has criticised the players publicly twice and uh, the fact that he did that dressing down or discussion with the players at Bournemouth without the rest of his staff, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Um, But, you know, by the end of this month, he could have the first trophy of his career. He could have beaten Spurs for the second time and he could be in the FA Cup quarterfinal. So it's fascinating. Over the next few games, we'll get a proper idea um, of of whether he's going to be there for the long term or not. But it's just so difficult because it was Huddersfield I mean really it's a it's difficult for them for the rest of the season now they've scored 13 goals in 25 games they need one more point to move away from Derby as the worst team in Premier League history Daniel and I both crossing our fingers that that will be the case but it's it's genuinely difficult to see them getting it but yeah hopefully onwards and upwards for Chelsea and Sarri Genuinely difficult to see them getting another point between now and the end of the season. Well, I mean, tell me where it's going to come from. I've watched them a couple of times in recent weeks. I'm going to be doing their game uh, against Arsenal at the weekend. And I, they had Adama Diakabe, who looks OK, but kind of like a poor man's Adama Traore. They, got, they brought on Steve Mounier uh, after Mbenza went off injured. And Mounier... That 46 shots on target. On, yeah, well, he had a header that grazed the bar. He looked mm. cross that it hadn't gone in, but it didn't go in. And after <laughs> and that... They conceded five goals. And then, yeah, they conceded five goals. You know, they, they bought on Mounier, who's had, before that game, and had 46 shots on target this season and scored once. All right, then. Uh, let's talk about Man United. And then 1-0 win at Leicester, because I didn't watch this one. What did I miss, Michael? Funny game. Manchester United were excellent for the first 20 minutes and then kind of just switched off and, and weren't offering much counter-attacking threat until late on. I thought Leicester were, were quite decent and probably should have got a point from this. thought it was interesting that the fans booed Claude Puel's substitution so much when he took off uh, James Madison, mm. um, who I don't think was having a great game, but is always a big threat from set pieces. Just because I, I think that booing says something about how Leicester fans feel about Claude Puel, rightly or wrongly. I think when you lose a fan base, it does have a... You know, a, a negative impact upon the upon the club, and and they do seem to be just petering out into a, a pretty mid-table season. When actually, I think they've got the first eleven, maybe not the squad, but the first eleven to to finish probably seventh in the Premier League. Okay, uh, question here from Luke Cooper, who says we can all see that OGS Oligander Solskjaer has made a spectacular impact on boosting the players' morale. But what has he done different tactically that's led to this uptick in form? Well, he's given Paul Pogba more freedom to play further up the pitch. I think that's that's very obvious, both in terms of his goal scoring and his passing. Um, 
yeah, he's made a couple of interesting changes in, in terms of between games. I thought away at Spurs, the first first half, they're excellent in terms of Lingard playing inside and attacking with two wide forwards. This wasn't, I didn't think, a particularly interesting game in a tactical sense, but um, that Pogba-Rashford combination was, it was a kind of similar pass, a different situation, but a kind of similar pass to the one that brought that goal against Tottenham. Mm. And um, they just seem to have good relationships in the side. I think Pogba combines well with both Rashford and Martial because he wants players running in behind I don't think they had that enough uh, under Mourinho Right I, I would ask um, why didn't he have such success at Cardiff then but then was it because it was Cardiff A little bit I, I, to be honest it was such a forgettable spell at Cardiff there I mean it was there was something weird about the club that season you know the way that um, Mackay left the situation surrounding the colours they played in the ownership it was just a kind of a no win situation I think for Solskjaer so mm. I'd be inclined not to read too much into that. The the strongest accusation against Solskjaer from Cardiff City fans was his transfer recruitment in that he effectively signed players that he knew um, or Scandinavian players or players that then never played for the club and didn't fit. Uh, and there is an interesting article written, I think it's Norwegian out there, that wrote an article about his relationship with certain agents who the players then ended up playing for Cardiff. Um, and yeah, that was his, the biggest accusation. He's not going to have that at Manchester United. He's not going to be in charge of recruitment. He might be able to submit players he'd like if he stays on permanently, but it's not going to be the same issue because the, the standard of players he's signing are going to be in a completely different world. So that might well help him. It should be said that this is, if he was going to pick one club to work at and if we would back it to work, he would pick Manchester United after Jose Mourinho in that a club where everyone just needs a bit of a lift and a club that he knows and loves and that knows and loves him. And have got a great squad of players. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Leicester, adding to their late on, because our, our, our last show was before the transfer window closed, there were one or two little late deals that went through, including Leicester picking up Yuri Tillemans out of Monaco. Not good enough for Monaco. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a funny one. I'm, I'm slightly surprised they've got rid of him and brought in Fabregas um, because I think Tielemans is a hugely talented player with a lot of room to develop he's a different kind of player to what Leicester have at the moment I mean Ndidi and Mendy sit very deep they're ball winners they use the ball reasonably well but Tielemans has got a great passing range reminds me a little bit of um, Moutinho who I mentioned earlier Um, I mean it's only a loan isn't it yeah. Adrian Silva's gone the other way Adrian Silva's yeah. gone the other yeah, way part of that uh, in other late transfer news Planet Football doing a nice little roundup actually of some of the, the deals you might not have seen including Demba Barr. Yeah, he's just left uh, Shanghai Shenhua for a second time and uh, joined Basak Shahir in Istanbul, where he'll be joined by Robinho, or Hobinho, if you prefer, <laughs> intriguingly enough. Joe Campbell has, has left Frosinone. He's joined Club Lyon after he failed to score in 17 appearances. I didn't yeah. realise he was at Frosinone. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I kind of had... When they went, oh, yeah... Mm. Uh, Get out while you can, Joel, will be the highlight of his career, won't it? That, yeah. that bloke at the train station. Strange, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Marek Hamsic uh, suddenly leaving Napoli. I mean, maybe this was on the card. To, I thought they'd resolve this whole thing and he was going to be sticking on. But no, he, uh, the weekend uh, they had that 3-0 win over Sampdoria and uh, and that was that. Off he goes to China. And of course Fellini, uh, he's what well, we talked about that last week. All very exciting. Rahul W says, Hi James, regular listener of the show. No questions but a request from me. It would be great if you could mention the Hakim Al-Arabi case sometime during the pod. Harrowing case that needs more traction. Absolutely. But extraordinary business. Bahrain uh, want him extradited. He's an Australian citizen. He went to Thailand for his honeymoon and was immediately arrested because there's a, a red notice, an Interpol warrant out which Interpol retracted almost immediately it was issued, but the ties have still stuck him in jail. And I think yesterday, was it, he made his first court appearance, his first extradition hearing. He's wanted for a vandalism case. He was convicted in absentia to 10 years in jail, despite evidence that he was actually playing in a televised football match at the time and thus wouldn't mm. have been able to be there. Physically, it was impossible. Yeah, It does seem extraordinary business. And the amount of pressure building on the ties, but they are they showing any signs of... Of acquiescing in this? No, and, and the the football link here is that what Al Arabi is, what he believes he's being accused of, is is speaking out politically against um, Sheikh Salman bin Ibrahim Al Khalifa, who's in the royal family in Bahrain, and he is also um, the president of the Asian Football Confederation. So, 
and is going for re-election at the moment. So the pressure, the reason there's a, this is kind of, I mean, it's a football story anyway because he's a footballer, but the reason for the, the football politics is that there's a lot of pressure on FIFA to say, well, you cannot let him be re-elected as Asian Football Confederation president if you're then going to allow a player who has been tortured in Bahrain, fled five years ago to Australia, if you're going to let him be extradited back to be tortured again. Um, it's a, they're saying it's a nonsense and it shows a complete lack of will. FIFA till now are saying we can't do anything, but FIFA do ban national teams for governmental interference. And uh, El Harabi's lawyers are saying, well, this is exactly what this is. It's a politically motivated case. It's nothing to do with vandalism. Um, so, yeah. Well, uh, as I say, huge pressure building. Are there any positive signs from, from, from all of that? In so much as it has now become a Western news story, yes. FIFA will do what FIFA will do, but if they do feel that there is a, a weight of opinion behind it, I'm sure that that will make a difference. I think it's. I think I'm right in saying it's Craig Foster, mm. uh, who's the former Australia captain, who has you know, effectively taken upon himself to to forge a publicity campaign rather than a legal campaign, and that does look to be. You know, there's articles on Sky News, on BBC at the moment, so it clearly is gaining traction. We'll see. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. Battle at the bottom, huge if your team's in it, huge rubbernecking fun if you're following one of the others. Uh, Bisham asks, which team is most likely to be dragged into the relegation battle? What's your pick, Matt? Uh, Seems to be Brighton is the popular opinion Mm. this week, but I'm not having that because... Their next three home games are against Burnley, Huddersfield and Cardiff and they're all winnable games for them so they could pull themselves out during that time. I guess maybe Burnley, even after their, their recent good run, they're only really? two points above it and I think mm. Hasenhutl's done really good stuff with Southampton so I think they would have enough to go out of it. But but looking at the table, it's actually difficult to, for me to make a strong case for anyone getting dragged in. I think the three that are bottom, Huddersfield, Fulham and Cardiff are the three that will go down at this point. Right, Cardiff currently two points from safety. Fulham who've slipped back after their defeat at Palace to seven points away from staying up and Huddersfield are fully 13. You mentioned... I think Palace is your big winners of the weekend. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, I think so. In the the Uncle Roy derby. Yes. Yeah, it was a good performance from them. I I must say, I really like Palace. I I like going there. There's a good atmosphere at uh, Selhurst Park. I think Hodgson going back there after 50 years away from his hometown club is an incredible story. I love how much they love Zaha. Juan Bissaka is another great player who's come through their academy who I think... Uh, will play for England at some point. Um, and as I've said all season, they've lacked a, a clinical striker. And in this game, Benteke looked confident. He hit the bar with an incredible bicycle kick. And then for Batshuayi to come on and uh, to have an impact. You know, he didn't score, but it was his shot that led to the rebounds. Mm. I, I just think that completes the side. And I think they're actually quite a good team to watch. Hodgson's got this reputation for being very defensive. And a couple of games they have been, the game against Chelsea, I thought they were really, really negative. But at home to, to lesser size, I think they are very entertaining to watch. Also, for a club whose, whose motto on the badge was almost we can't win if Wilf Sahar isn't playing, this was a victory in which Zaha was most yeah, definitely not there. Absolutely. That's why it's a funny one. Being very cynical, I don't like that a club can loan out a player for a few months who I think will completely change the relegation race. I think without him, without Michi Batshuayi, Palace could have been in trouble. And with him, I think they'll be absolutely fine. It just... It leaves a slightly sour taste that that will define a season. Good, good luck to you know, good luck to Palace for getting him over the line. It, it looked like he was going to ha- end up having to stay in Valencia, but I just think if he goes to any of those other clubs, he keeps them up as well. It's just a strange one for me. But what? What? I don't, I don't really get that. What would you mean? Well, what, what, just as I have a, an because, issue because it's a loan. Yeah, because it's an inter inter season inter Premier League loan. Yeah, I just. I just don't agree with those. I, I agree with loans for young players intrally in the same league, but I don't agree with, you know, effectively a player who should be at his peak moving for a few months to a side, helps him stay up, goes away again. I just it just leaves a bit of a sour taste. Well, the curious thing about him was that he he was uh, I think when we were doing last week's pod, he was heading for West Ham, wasn't he? Uh, that was rumoured. I mean, Monaco was the place where he was heading for for a long time mm. from Valencia, but he was definitely the best piece of business on deadline day for me. The fact that they got him on loan, uh, we saw what he did at Dortmund last season. He scored a load of goals for mm. Chelsea in the FA Cup before that last season. And just not in a kind of I'm mad me way, but he's so much fun, honestly. You have him round the training ground, the mood lifts by several notches he's he's somebody that everybody wants to hang out with and, right. and that's not 
everything, but it's not nothing either. I should also say, to, to aid my point, that reportedly Crystal Palace are playing very little of his wages through the course of the move. So it's a, a kind of effectively a complete free roll of the dice for them. Nice. Okay. Good on them. Uh, elsewhere, Brighton, who uh, don't have to worry, says Matt Davis-Adams, <laughs> had a nil-nil draw with Watford. Notable for Ben Foster's amazing performance in goal. Amazing, no? Yeah, he's having a really good season. I think he's up there with uh, one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League this season. He's an interesting character, Foster, because he's done numerous interviews over the years where he basically says that football's not that much of a big deal to him. He's, you know, he kind of just treats it like a job like any other. Um, maybe hasn't fulfilled his potential from what we expected when he was at Manchester United. But Do you, do you think there are a, uh, a lot of players like that? Um, Michael Owen famously... I, th- I think he more just fell out of love with the game really? rather than... Foster just never. He just basically says, "I don't have the mentality to be at the top and keep striving." And I'm just want to. It's really good with, nice with exactly as Mark was saying with Foster. He, he retired from international football very early because of that, and it was effectively him saying, "I just don't really want the extra jobs. I've got enough on my plate just being a club footballer." And yeah, exactly that. Just has other things going on. So, but he seems to be into other forms of exercise. Like he, he did that massive cycle trip, didn't he, to to get over a knee injury? Did he? So it's not that he's you know lazy. <laughs> he just. Uh, He's just not that asked about football, which is interesting. Who Fair was this dues. Spurs defender? French, was it? Who Harry oh, Asu Akoto, yeah. yeah. Asu, Cameroon, wasn't he? Asu Akoto, famously, um, didn't care for football very much. Who? Bobby Zamora as well, I think, similar. Uh, producer Ben says he became an adult movie star. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? I think it was more of a, a one-off. He knows the plot. <laughs> classic plumber. Um, no, it was, I think it was a one-off rather than a career choice. Okay. But, yeah, he, um, he partook in... Okay, professional acting. And on the other, you know, very much the other side of the coin, you've got people like um, Philip Mulryan, who was a yes. Man United player who became a priest. Yeah, became ordained, I think, only a couple of years ago. Really okay. good story. Very nice. The now divine Philip Mulryan. Yes, lovely. <laughs> uh, right, uh, I can't remember what we were talking about. Oh, yeah, Brighton-Watford and that amazing Lewis Dunk thing with his head. Uh, also, Burnley had a 1-1 draw with Saints. A word for Nathan Redmond. Yes. Who... Uh, was being farmed out, well, I say farmed out, why, by Mark Hughes. He, he was a winger under Mark Hughes and no one was really advising Hughes any different on that. But um, Ralph Hasenhutl has moved him into a kind of, not a number 10 in that he's not expected to create, but more sort of, a, I guess, a support striker, the old hmm. second striker, which you don't really see much of anymore. But he scored six times already under Hasenhutl, hadn't scored all season under Hughes, so... It's completely transformed Redmond's game. All right. Weirdly, this was the game which actually drew the biggest volume of questions oh. from our listeners. Why? Three. I don't oh. know. As I say, um, <laughs> slightly surprisingly, I'll go Lewis Collins. Says, not fashionable as our results usually get brushed over. But can we have thoughts on Ralph's impact on Saints since taking over? Daniel, you're... Pro- proactively, I've done that already. A so. little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul McIntosh, tactically, have Burnley done anything markedly different in the last month or two to improve their results? It surely can't be as simple as ditching Joe Hart. I think it Bring can. on Crouchy. Well, yeah. But the, the, <laughs> prior to that, they, they really had an up, uptick in, uh, in results. I've mentioned casually Tarkovsky coming back without really knowing why. Is there anything in particular that Sean Dyche has... On, on, on highlight shows, they say they've gone back to basics. <laughs> I don't think they ever strayed away from basics. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, from what I've seen, they've defended much better, and that probably is because of Tarkovsky. But no, it seems to have been the same approach from what I've seen. And okay. uh, yeah, they've, it's worked for them. All right. In terms but, of Hasenhuten, yeah. the other thing he has done, not tactically, but he's he's played academy kids a lot more mm. which is and because they've played well then he deserves credit for giving them the chance that's kind of generally increased the competition for places which is up the i guess up the game of people like redmond because he realizes that he's no longer a guaranteed pick in the team mm. and he's brought ward prowse back who's one of the oh, best dead yeah. ball deliverers in the in the league for me all right this was also one of three games that featured a really inexplicable handball at the weekend <laughs> it was really weird for that you had cyrus christie doing it for fulham um, in this game, it was uh, Stevens when he was battling Peter Crouch. Um, and the other one was Steve Cook for Bournemouth did exactly the same thing for Cardiff. We'll, Open. we'll come on to that game in a second or two. But the other question about Burnley Saints was Barry Plummer asking, how is it the Zaha is sent off for clapping after getting his first yellow and Ashley Barnes is not after screaming abuse into an official's face after receiving his yellow? Don't get me wrong, I think both deserve red cards. Ashley Barnes, it was, first of all, 
an extraordinary decision by the referee. Yeah, and even more extraordinary by his assistant mm. who had the, the better view of it. But um, yeah, 100% agree with um, with Barriers. I mean, it's very Ashley Barnes that, you know, he's got form for this kind of thing. He, he got a he got a long ban for tripping a referee once in his career, didn't Did he? he? But Yeah, but he's... Um, Cynical. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like Ashley Tactical Barnes. Tactical fouling. <laughs> But yeah, so but it, it it did highlight the the Ill- illogicality, the the senselessness of this uh, rule that we were saying last week. Mm. It's bizarre how clapping is seen as worse than than screaming obscenities in an official's face. I do think the point is generally valid in that the respect campaign is is unfortunately turning into a nonsense because nothing is stopping players screaming at officials and player power dictates that we want those players on the pitch so it ends up that they stay on the pitch you know without picking on unfairly Jamie Vardy would not play in the Premier League more than 10 or 15 times a season if he was banned every time or sent off every time he swore in the face of an official it just happens and nothing will be done about it because the players are the ones with the power they're the ones that people pay to see unless they clap Unless they clap sarcastically, yes. Extraordinary. Uh, also, Cardiff with a mighty win against Bournemouth on an emotional afternoon. Uh, once again, a lot of tributes to Emiliano's Sala, some of which is, it's almost curious because Cardiff never had him as a player. The fans never saw him. The, 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 the difference here being that Neil Warnock did meet him and repeatedly talked with him and uh, was really, really mm. moved uh, at the end of the game by both the tributes and also his own thoughts about what he, you know, wh- where, what should have been happening at that point. Yeah, and he, you know, he said himself, Warnock, that he feels incredibly guilty because if he hadn't assigned for Cardiff, then he wouldn't have had to take that flight and if buts and maybes. But uh, yeah, Warnock is not a man who we associate with floods of tears um, by his own design. That's how he sculpted his own managerial persona. But yeah, he was. He was in He was in tears as he went completely circled the pitch to thank the supporters. And I think this. I think that the, the tears and the emotion was probably because this was Warnock saying, right, we do, we do also need to stay in the Premier League. So this draws a line under it now. We've done it. We've done it very well. I think the Cardiff have dealt with it impeccably. Mm. But at some point now, we have to say, it's a horrible tragedy, but we need to move on. Um, you know, or we never forget what's happened, but we also need to now think, right, let's 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 do this properly, and let's, you know, if it's stay up for him, so be it. But let's get our minds on the job of staying in the Premier League because that will define Cardiff's future as well. I, I get what you're saying, James, about the fact that he never played and, and the tributes were so fulsome. But I think football often in this kind of situation can be a vehicle for people to express grief that they might be feeling about other things as well because you can publicly show it in such a way that you don't often in, in other um, aspects of your life that it, people can use it that way too. So maybe that's that's part of it. Mm. Also, There's also nothing else that... Um, by design brings so many thousands of people together in everyday life Um, football is the most watched sport and football matches are the most attended events generally so there's nothing else that does it by design and that helps you know that helps the tributes enormously Uh, a mighty three points in Cardiff's bid to stay up uh, as they beat Bournemouth with a Bobby Reid brace on his birthday Uh, pleasingly enough what's going on with Bournemouth they beat Chelsea 4-0 and then they lose 2-0 at Cardiff. Yeah, I, I never really know what's going on with Bournemouth. Right. Like, I, I'm not I'm not entirely surprised that they do this kind of thing. I, I, I always expect them to play well, and sometimes they just do inexplicable things at the back. I thought the defending for the second goal was awful. They're playing an offside trap, and it's one of those where it was Nathaniel Klein who was playing them onside. But I actually think Klein was maybe in the right position. The centre-backs just seemed so keen to go, right, second half, we'll push up at the start of this half. And they just got themselves into a terrible position. So they are liable to this kind of defensive meltdown. I do think they need to, you know, invest in, in defenders. There's a few teams in the Premier League who who just don't have the individuals. And I think I think Bournemouth is one of them defensively. Okay, It's admirable the way they've stood with the likes of Steve Cook and Dan Gosling and Andrew Sermon from League One or whatever. But yeah, they need to upgrade now. They're, they're, they're poor away from home as well as a big problem. They've lost nine of 12 away from home this season. So they need to do something about that if they want to finish where they are at the moment, which is in the top 10. Yeah. By one point ahead of Leicester. So, uh, that's the Premier League weekend. Of course, there is that midweek instalment at Goodison Park with Man City. After this, though, we'll be casting our uh, wandering football-loving eyes uh, to some of the delights that the wide world of the sport had over the last couple of days, Matt.
sweet sounds of uh, Eric Clapton, probably the greatest guitar player of all time, until we saw the, the ones that took part in the Asian Cup final against Japan. Now, Matt, you did the commentary on this, on the semis as well. Yes, I did, yeah. Take us through the game. Okay, so um, just to preface it with Japan had looked really good in the semi-final against mm. an Iran team who hadn't conceded a goal up to that point of the season. Japan uh-huh. scored three times in the second half. Qatar coming into the final also having not conceded a goal throughout the competition. Uh, they were very good in their semi against the UAE, which you spoke about, you know, the right, shoes raining s- down from the pitch. Right. Uh, from the stands, rather. That was rather. especially sweet, of course, because Qatari fans couldn't even get to the game. Quite. And so we came to the final in the 43,000-seater Zaid Sports City Stadium in, in Abu Dhabi, and it wasn't full because it's not an easy journey from Japan and because no Qatari fans are allowed um, in Abu Dhabi so they, there was um, a small section of Amanis apparently who were there in support of, of Qatar okay. um, which made it interesting uh, Qatar went 1-0 up through uh, it, you've got to see the, the first few goals that they scored absolutely outrageous Just unbelievable outhead kick from Amoaz Ali, who's one of the two players that the UAE complained about uh, the AFC, the Asian Football Confederation, uh, about their eligibility to play uh, because of a breach of residency rules. Uh, Ali was born in Sudan and the midfielder Al Rawi, who was born in Baghdad, also under scrutiny. Bear in mind their right back, Pedro Carrera, is Portuguese, but he's right. been playing for Qatar since 2013. So I don't know at what point you draw the line with this. It's not like Qatar are the only team sure. who have naturalised players uh, in their side. Uh, okay, Ali- so so he's, he gets his ninth anyway. Uh, Amor Ali gets his ninth of the campaign. Yeah, a record for any um, AFC Asian Cup. So mm. you know, nobody's ever got that many in a competition before. He got the Player of the Tournament award as well. He plays in the Qatar Stars League at the moment, but I don't think he will for, for much longer. Okay. Second goal, beautiful too. So they go 2-0 up with their first two shots on target in the game. Wow, that does sound good. Abdulaziz Hatem uh, curling one in from uh, 25 yards. Japan really didn't show up in the first half. It's quite uh, it was quite an inexperienced Japanese squad that they took. Um, I mentioned previously, the likes of Kagawa left at home, etc. But they just didn't perform at all in the first half. Better after the break. Pulled one back through Minamino. Um, Out of um, Austin Powers, is that? <laughs> yeah, quite. Uh, as I say, <laughs> fine. As I say, that was the first goal that Katara conceded. More than 10 hours of football in the tournament. Then Qatar got a very dodgy penalty, and this is where questions uh, were asked. Uh, a VAR penalty, uh, the referee hadn't given it. VAR said, you might want to go and have a look at that. Went and had a look at his screen on the side of the pitch. Mai Yoshida, clearly accidental. Uh, one of those where you're jumping in the air and you can't keep your arms by your side. Not, uh, and it hits him. not no. quite that high. All right. no, not one of those. Um, and for some reason, the, the referee gave it. Akram Afif scored the penalty. Uh, he was another standout player. He got 10 assists in the tournament. Wow. Uh, but Qatar, worth keeping an eye on. So they win it by three goals to one. Their first ever Asian Cup. Japan had won all four previous finals that they they played in so it's a, a big big win Felix Sanchez the, the, the Spaniard in, in charge of Qatar has been in Qatari football since 2006 he started as a coach at La Masia at Barcelona and he's taken Qatar under 19s under 20s under 23s and now the senior team so there's same this, group of players uh, essentially yeah because mm. they shipped out all those naturalised Brazilians that they had for a while uh, and so he's been working with this squad for years so obviously it's unpalatable in a lot of ways but in terms of the football they were were excellent. They were the best team that I saw in the tournament, and they won't be whipping boys in 2022. I thought. Well, Martin Darlington, who, who lives in Qatar, says, uh, "Could you give some coverage to the Asian Cup final? Do any of you think Qatar could spring the odd surprise in 2022? Will the rest of the world start to take notice, or will it depend on Qatar's results in the Copa America? Because that's the thing. Mm. They're next going to get the chance to shine against the likes of Brazil, Argentina, etc. Because as are Japan, as oh, uh, Japan are invited as well, yeah. are they? And that is that this summer's Copper America. It is, yeah, and it's sort of Brilliant. slightly embarrassing, I think, for the for the Copper America because the assumption is they invite these random teams, uh, thinking, well, they're not going to win it. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe Qatar or Japan will go close. Wow! It also means that um, 
Qatar will be participating in the Confederations Cup the year before the World Cup, which they would normally have been allowed to do. But because it was it's held in summer and they couldn't hold it in Qatar, they actually weren't necessarily going to be in the Confederations Cup the year before the World Cup. But mm. th- because they've won this, it means they will. And another host in it's going to be held in Asia, but they haven't decided the host yet. Probably will be Japan. So actually, they might both be in the Confederations Cup as well. Interesting. Do you know, we we were talking earlier about Son Hyung Min and number of South Korean and Japanese players. It's, it's completely in the mainstream now for them to be top level footballers. How long do you think before we see the fruits of this Qatari investment in youth football? bearing fruit in a similar fashion? Well, there are a few players in the squad who had spent time at Spanish teams' academies, um, Real Sociedad and Villarreal amongst them, and then they've ended up being loaned back to clubs in Qatar because it hasn't really worked out for them. But there are... Uh, Afif in particular who I mentioned who who got the 10 assists and Ali the top scorer, or whether you think he's Qatari or not, um, they will be picked up by... I don't know. Maybe maybe they start in in Holland or Belgium or somewhere like that, and then and then go on from there. But it it will happen, I think. I mean, it, key is is keeping Felix Sanchez in charge because right. he's a capable coach. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, so now, oh, in France, no one was smiling in Paris on Sunday night. Why, Michael? PSG lost in a really really good game uh, at home to Lyon, and. Uh, Leon were by far the better side. I mean, PSG's best performer was uh, Ariola, the goalkeeper, who made three or four really outstanding saves in the first half, although did also make a slight error for the first goal. But he kept them in it. And it was, uh, I mean, the disappointing thing is you then look at the league table and it hasn't really opened up. So PSG much. is still 10 points clear with two games in hand of Lille. Leon are now three points further back from Lille, mm-hmm. the Lillois. Uh, but still, uh, the first time they've been defeated since when in, in Ligue 1? January, is it? January 2018, I think. Right. Okay. Uh, Denayer's goal line clearance was something pretty amazing, wasn't it? It was, and also fits very nicely with his name. Yes, I think. <laughs> um, but they're a good team, Leon. I saw them uh, earlier in the season when they went at Manchester City, mm. and uh, they're really well organised. So, like, really, really serious. T- you know, they caused Manchester City problems all night, and they've got tremendous pace on the counter attack. Mm. And this was. Uh, it felt like an unusual game because it was just both teams were just all out attack the whole game. It was really enjoyable, and I must say, I don't really say that about league and games very often. Right, quite, Leon feel quite. They feel like a happening Bundesliga team in the way they play. It's kind of it is organised, but also with this counter attacking football, it feels like when, when for example, Munch and Gladbach were coming through quite well, or Hoffenheim, they feel quite forward thinking. Which again, being very stereotypical and cynical, you don't necessarily associate with. Liga teams. Right. Mönchengladbach, by the way, have gone back into second they in the have, Bundesliga. Yeah. Dortmund got held to a 1-1 draw at Frankfurt. Bayern had the chance to cut their six-point lead, but they went and lost 3-1 at Bayer Leverkusen. They are now third seven points behind uh, Borussia Dortmund. And Mönchengladbach move into second spot. No Neymar in this Lyon game, meanwhile, for PSG, which a lot of people have said, well, yeah, that's why. Uh, curiously, and with Man United coming up in the Champions League next week, that's pretty interesting. As is the fact that this is the fifth year in a row that Neymar will be either injured or suspended over his sister's birthday on March the 11th. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that. Interesting. Mm. Uh, also, that defeat means that Juve are the only club still unbeaten in Europe's top five leagues this season. Although they came pretty close, I suppose. Well, they were 2-0 up and then 3-1 up against promoted Palmer. And then uh, yes. and then they ended up drawing 3-3. Did you enjoy this, Daniel? I did because I watched it and because Jovino scored the second and third goals for Palmer. And he is a player who I had... I knew he was at Palmer this season, but I had completely gone off my radar for years. I'd forgotten that he was you know, a, a very bad Premier League player, but he is rejuvenated at Palmer. He scored that kind of end of the pitch to end of the pitch mm. goal the other week. Uh, and yeah, scored. Astonishingly complacent bit of uh, play from Juve, which set up the... Yeah. It was a really late goal. What was it, 92nd or something, I think, mm. the equaliser? And they obviously thought they had it in the bag. Um, uh, Mandzukic basically lobs the ball back into his own area. Yeah. There's a, the, front of the Italian papers on Sunday was picture of Ronaldo sort of very forlorn and Jovino with the biggest smile you've ever seen it was great yeah. Ronaldo got a brace in this game and then flew off to Lisbon to see Sporting lose 2-4 at home to Benfica in uh, one of the big El Super Classico things there yeah, yeah. what is that uh, one of the big Super Classicos <laughs> basically um, 
but uh, but yeah, Juve with one or two problems. With, James Horncastle was talking about this last week, the fact that with all the defensive injuries they have, and they had Rugani there playing at the back with Casares, who's only just arrived, and they look very uh, wobbly indeed at, at the back. Good time, uh, so. Benatia, yeah, yeah, let him go. And they've got Atletico Madrid coming up next week. Uh, so they're racing to try and get Bonucci and Chiellini back for for that. Uh, Barzali, the other you know member of the BBC who's currently out. Uh, all sorts of other things happening in Italy. We'll be discussing that in our Italian podcast, Golazzo, on Wednesday. Uh, should mention Inter hosting Bologna. Inter, who in the last week got knocked out of the cup and been beaten by Torino, Thankfully, this time around, we're hosting a side so bad they just fired their manager, Pippo Inzaghi. Bologna is the club. They brought in Sinisa Mihalovic. They were away at San Siro. What happened? Bologna won 1 0. And uh, a lot of boos. Antonio Conte going back. Is that the talk? Antonio Conte has been doorstepped walking around the streets of Milan. I'm just out for a stroll, he says. <laughs> but I think everyone has put two and two together on, on that one. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. In Golazzo. The other French story, though, of course, was the fact that Leonardo Jardim got a victory on his return to Monaco. They were playing Toulouse, ironically. Yeah, nothing to lose. Yeah. And they won 2-1 at home. Two to lose, to win. Mm, Fabregas scored, didn't he? Yes, he did. Mm. Both uh, the supporters looked delighted. <laughs> this was the first win they'd seen all season. At the Imagine Louis if Dirt. you'd have told Cesc Fabregas a month ago that he would score his first Monaco goal under Leonardo Jardim, having mm. moved on a three-year deal to play under Thierry Henry. Yep. It's bizarre. It is curious, isn't it? Anyway, uh, that is the football. Let's get odds on the football. Producer Ben has been speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jim. By plump up a cushion, listeners, I've got Lee Price from Paddy Power on the line. Lee, give me City's title odds now after that win at Arsenal. Yeah, it obviously depends how Liverpool do tonight against West Ham, but for now, the Reds remain the odds-on favourites to win the league. They're 4-6. to six. Man City, after dispatching Arsenal comfortably, are in to 13-10. to 10. Hopefully, it's going to be to and fro for the rest of the season, but for now, City's second favourites, quite good value. Things are not going well at Goodison Park for Marco Silva. Is there any suggestion that he's not going to last the season at Everton? Well, the pressure's certainly ramping up on him. He's been so backed in the market that Claude Puel's no longer odds on. Imagine that. But Puel is, of course, still the favourite. Silva is 11-4, second favourite to be the next Premier League manager to leave their post. And evens not to see the season out. He's bang in trouble. At the bottom of the table, Huddersfield are well and truly down, of course. But who's heading to the Championship with the Terriers? Well, we've been stung before by the seemingly impossible, hashtag Leicester. But I'm sure even Huddersfield fans would concede their relegation. They're now a massive 1-200 to to go down. We haven't completely written Fulham off in the same way, but we're hardly vouching for them either. They're 1-5 to to get relegated. Cardiff, who are still very much in the fight, are also odds on at 1-2. Burnley, just two points clear at 2-1. While Newcastle and Southampton, both level on points with the Clarets, by the way, are light years ahead in the betting. 13-2 and 12-1, respectively. Massive value there if you think either of those sides are going to drop. And finally, Lee, we've been hearing about Qatar and their win in the Asian Cup. Give us the odds, please, on them being the next world champions. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the World Cup might be going to a footballing hotbed after all. Or just a hot, hot, hotbed. But the odds on Qatar winning the tournament have dropped dramatically after their Asian Cup success. But they do remain outsiders. You can get them at 125-1 to 1 to win the World Cup. Brazil are the current favourites, imaginatively at 5-1. to 1. France just behind them at 11-2. to England, by the way, are seventh in the betting at 10 to 1, just in case. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Matt, I see from my notes that you had a run in with the law on the Sunday. What happened there? <laughs> I, <don't know> what <laughs> yeah. talk about that. I, I didn't, but uh, I was on a train from London to Nottingham yesterday morning. Oh. Uh, and it was 10 o'clock in the morning and a rather drunk 50-something-year-old woman was uh, throwing around expletives, deletives and racial slurs. So really? And they arrested she her, was, they? She was met by British Transport Police uh, off the train and I headed a queue of four other passengers waiting to make statements about her behaviour. Good for you. Uh, I got a call back at five o'clock Attack. from the police to take a statement over the phone, mm-hmm. at which point she was still too drunk to be interviewed. Damn. Yeah, it was a 10am train from St Pancras. Wow. This country. Good old Nottingham. Go back to the homeland, isn't she? No, she was from London. Uh, yeah, with your regionalist <laughs> attitude. I mean, I'm from Nottingham, so <laughs> yeah. I was attacking myself. Some of my best friends are from Nottingham, eh, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make it right. 
On a happier note regarding Nottingham, any news for the championship? Yes, no, Martin O'Neill is, is losing games. I don't think that one's got very long, I have to say. Really? No, we are nothing if not prolific in sacking managers. OK, well, there'll be, there'll be more of this kind of thing in the uh, Totally Football League show. Who's hosting that this week? It's me. Matt, you're hosting. Yeah, yeah, we're very much in the end zone of my time as Caroline makes her way back from uh, the Super Bowl. Oh, did she go to the Super Bowl? She did, yes. Yeah. So, so I've been doing, uh, I did last week and I'll be doing tomorrow as well. We'll be talking about Norwich going top on goal the difference. British broadcast, sports broadcasting. I know, who cares? <laughs> Ridiculous. Money. I think it's great money. Yeah. But who pays for it? The Americans. Us, the taxpayer. <laughs> <laughs> and they get great player access. No, I find it bizarre how yeah. much coverage is given. I mean, fine, yeah. you know, I, I enjoy. American sports, but why everybody suddenly needs to be on site? Yeah, did you see that selfie that Darren Fletcher posted? Yes, with David Moyes and Gareth Southgate, and it, it was really, really odd collection yeah, of people. I must have missed that. Dave Brailsford was in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, right, anyway, so yes. Yes, so I'll be hosting the Totally Football League show. We'll be talking about Norwich's 3-1 win at Leeds. They go top of the championship on goal difference okay. as a result. Um, also, some A1 trolling of West Brom supporters by Tony Pulis, who took his current side, Middlesbrough, to the Hawthorns and won a 3-2 thriller, believe it or not. Um, Tyrone Ming slicing and dicing Ooh, Nelson Oliveira's face as if he were horrible. Terry Funk to Mick Foley. Is that Foley. on purpose? Um, no. Apparently not. He has got a no. bit of previous for that. Uh, no, he has apologised for it. Uh, and also Paul Tisdale in League Two making an unhappy return to his old club, Exeter, with his current club, MK Dons. That's Sam Park and Adrian Clark and Joe Crilly with me for that, available around tea time Tuesday. Can I ask, is it true that Sunderland scored at the moment that the cat came on the pitch at Goodison? <laughs> I don't Apparently know, but it was so, a black yes. cat as well, wasn't Canary, it? Canary, Mark, Mark Canary, some, uh, was, was saying... Norwich that, City fan, yes. Yeah, he, he wants to release Canaries. 67th <laughs> minute, it says in the Times. So, sounds about right. That's extraordinary. Hang on, we can cross-reference that. 67 minute there, and it was just after the third goal, which was the 66th minute at Everton. There we go, yeah. That's extraordinary. Great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, we're back on Thursday with Tony Football Show with Emma Saunders, Duncan Alexander and James Horncastle. So that could be interesting to join us to find out. Many thanks, Michael and Matt and Daniel, for today. Have a super time. In the meanwhile, listeners, cheerio for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.